Good morning and welcome to Counterbalance Radio, a new KZUM talk show featuring progressive Christian voices. I am Beth Menhusen, one of your co-hosts for this program. And I am Richard Randolph, also a co-host for Counterbalance. Good morning. Today we will be discussing the Bible and ethics in the Christian life with Professor Bruce Birch. The Bible is a sacred text for the Christian faith, and yet sometimes it can be misused and abused by Christians seeking its guidance. Today, we will be talking with one of the world's leading Bible scholars about the scriptures and about how it is that they should inform our Christian lives in a meaningful and appropriate way. These are important questions, and I think we're going to have a really lively discussion. But before we get started, uh, we have a few important announcements for you. KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. You are listening to KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from Abend Music, presenting a German Requiem by Brahms, featuring. Support for KZUM comes from the Nebraska Folk and Roots Festival featuring a pre-party event on May 25th at Kincader Brewery located in Lincoln's Rail Yard from 8 p.m. to midnight with live music by the Miles Jasnowski Band, Mike Semrad and the Riverhawks, and Adam Soul Music. Details on Facebook and NebraskaFolkAndRoots.com. Support for KZUM comes from the Nebraska Folk and Roots Festival at Pinewood Bowl Theater on Saturday, June 15th. Featuring the Travelin' McCurries, Pokey Lafarge, Greg Brown, the Matt Cox Band, Andrea Von Campen, and many more. Festival tickets, complete schedule, and other details on Facebook and Nebraska. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Welcome back to Counterbalance, a weekly radio show here on KZUM. We envision a show that focuses on social, ethical, spiritual, and faith issues from a progressive Christian perspective. Topics will include uh, interfaith sharing as well as science and faith topics. We've probably all heard conservative Christian perspectives on other radio stations and TV shows. However, we plan to offer an alternative voice for you, our KZUM listeners, an alternative progressive Christian perspective, which is also authentically Christian and which takes the Bible seriously along with Christian tradition and current perspectives. We've named our new show Counterbalance because we seek to counterbalance those more conservative Christian voices. 
I'm Beth Menhusen, pastor at Connection Point and one of the co-hosts for Counterbalance. And I'm Richard Randolph, uh, the other counter, uh, co-host for Counterbalance. Uh, I also am a pastor at Christ Connection Point United Methodist Church here in Lincoln. We are one church in two different locations with two very different personalities, but a shared commitment to act inclusively, to seek God, to serve others, and to do justice. That's right. At Christ Connection Point, uh, a big part of who we are is welcoming, including, and affirming all people, regardless of their ethnicity, economic class, uh, gender, or sexual orientation. And that's because we recognize that all people are created in the image of God and loved by God for who they are. For more information about our church, please visit ChristUMC.org. And also check out ConnectionPointLNK.org. Today, we will be discussing the Bible and and how it should inform Christian life and particularly um, ethics. Uh, We'll also be talking a lot about ethics. Um, What is ethics? What's the difference between ethics and morality? You know, sometimes Christians misuse or abuse the Bible in their lives. They may misinterpret a passage of Scripture, or they may focus on one or two isolated verses without taking into account the full sweep of the biblical message. Sometimes they take verses out of context. I know what you mean, Richard. One thing that's uh, really troubling to me and many others is when the Bible becomes a weapon that uh, Christians use to condemn or dismiss others. And yet at the same time, you know, Beth, the the Bible is um, an important force in the lives of Christians. The Bible is our, um, our sacred text, our foundation, our touchstone. Most Christians seek to live lives that are consistent with the teachings of Scripture. Sometimes the problem is interpreting exactly what the Scripture teaches for our particular situation and, and context. Exactly. Today on Counterbalance, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Bruce Birch, who is the co-author of a recent book entitled Bible and Ethics in the Christian Life. We are also interested in the thoughts and questions from our listeners, so we hope that you will consider calling in during our show. The phone number to call in to KZUM is 402-474-5086, and you can use extension 1. So, Richard, will you introduce our special guest? Thanks, Beth. Today, our special guest is uh, Dr. Bruce Birch, who is Dean Emeritus of Washington, uh, excuse me, of Wesley Theological mm-hmm. Seminary, which is in Washington, D.C. Uh, he served for 38 years as professor of Old Testament at Wesley the- Theological Seminary, and then also 12 years as academic dean. Bruce earned his Ph.D. from Yale University in 1970, and he is ordained in the United Methodist Church. His books and articles range from scholarly works to publications aimed at enriching the life of the church for clergy and and laity. His published works include A Theological Introduction to the Old Testament, uh, co-written with several uh, other uh, biblical scholars. Um, Another book uh, that uh, he co-wrote with Lewis Parks has the intriguing title of Ducking Spears, Dancing Madly, a biblical model of church leadership. That sounds good. That does sound good. 
He uh, has also written the book, What Does the Lord Require? The Old Testament Call to Social Witness. Uh, Bruce was uh, a contributor uh, to the uh, New Interpreter's Bible. And um, I have to include this title, which is one of uh, Bruce's earlier books, um, The Predicament of the Prosperous, which he co-wrote with uh, Larry Rasmussen. Uh, as a, a young pastor uh, in the 1980s, um, um, so it's a long time ago, Beth, <laughs> but uh, that book, The Predicament of the Prosperous, uh, I found so influential uh, as I um, was in my first ap- appointment, my first parish, and thinking about the relationship between um, uh, social justice and uh, the life of the church. Um, so I'd have to say that book was especially influential for me. Bruce continues to write for popular and scholarly audiences from his home uh, now in Frederick, Maryland. Bruce, uh, welcome to Counterbalance. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. Great. We are so excited to have you today. Um, Today, we're going to be discussing your recent book, Bible and Ethics in the Christian Life, uh, a new conversation. And... um, let me just provide the publication information for our listeners. Uh, this book was published by Fortress Press in 2018. Uh, Bruce co-wrote um, this book with uh, uh, Professors Jacqueline Lapsley, uh, Cynthia Mo Lobella, and uh, Larry Rasmussen. Um, and I, I want to caution readers that there is another book with a similar title that Bruce and Larry Rasmussen wrote uh, long ago called uh, Bible and Ethics in the Christian Life. Uh, But this is a new book. It's a different book with uh, additional uh, authors. Uh, And so the the book, if you're thinking about uh, ordering the book uh, or purchasing it in your local bookstore, uh, the book is called Bible and Ethics in the Christian Life, A New Conversation. And again, that's published by Fortress Press in 2018. So, Bruce, you and Larry uh, Rasmussen originally published a similar book, um, which I've just mentioned, over 40 years ago. Um, And uh, as I understand, you were approached by a publisher to update uh, your original book. And um, as you thought about updating the book for a a third edition, you decided to write a a new book instead to include uh, additional writers on the project. So can you explain to our listeners why you felt that a new book was needed and why you decided to add new authors? Well, Larry and I published our original book, uh, as you said, uh, over 40 years ago. That's a whole generation in biblical terms. And uh, we really felt like uh, the context in which we were raising these questions now has totally changed both in the life of the of the world and in the life of the church. And so um, when we thought about it, we thought we didn't want to just update an old work. We wanted to come at the whole question of how uh, Bible and ethics relate in the Christian life in a new way. And to do that, we thought we ought to uh, choose a couple of additional conversation partners. Um, And so we asked Cynthia Molabita, who is an ethicist teaching at Pacific Lutheran, and Jacqueline Lapsley, uh, who teaches Bible at 
Princeton Theological Seminary and is now the dean there. And um, we really felt by broadening the conversation to include a new generation, we could have an entirely new conversation because the context is so uh, different. And we very intentionally made both of those new conversation partners women because one of the things, excuse me, one of the things that's happened uh, in those 40 years since the original book was published was the entrance of large numbers of women into both the fields of biblical studies and Christian ethics, which wasn't the case in 1976 when the book was originally published. So there are many levels on which this really is a, a brand new conversation. I think that's great, Bruce, uh, especially uh, give you credit for including women in your new in your new edition. That as a young woman in ministry, I think that's that's great, and we certainly need more people uh, doing that, more people in authority like you. So thank you. Um, you conclude your introduction by claiming that your book is a modest part of that immodest rethinking of our collective existence and identity. Could you say more of what you mean by that? Um, like, how should the church go about rethinking itself? Well, we say at the very beginning of this book that two of the fundamental realities of our lives as Christians have changed. One is the world itself. We've, we've now entered into a period where human life is the most... Um, uh, important part of what affects the future of the earth. We all know about climate change and environmental dangers. Um, we all know these are being taken seriously in some quarters and not in other quarters. And we really uh, feel that we have now entered into a new time in the life of the world, and scientists have uh, recognized that by naming the era that we are in the Anthropocene era. Uh, I think our listeners probably all have uh, heard about Jurassic Park and and know some of those uh, Paleolithic terms. Those were right. all named after different parts of, of our geology, the, the, the earth itself. Well, now Anthropocene comes from the, the Greek word for humanity, Anthropos, and it's a recognition by scientists that the era we live in is no longer determined by uh, movements of tectonic plates and and uh, eruptions of volcanoes and things of that sort. But our future is going to be determined by what human life does with the Earth. It's so important. The other reality that's changed is the Church itself. The, the Church is now a global reality to an extent that it, it was not at the beginning of my career. We It was beginning to dawn and we always had an interest in global mission and and things of that sort. But now, global realities are instantly present to us through uh, social media and the Internet. Uh, it, every issue that we consider is now a part of, uh, as the church, is a part of a global church, and that's deeply affected by that. So in light of that, we really felt like we needed to rethink our whole collective existence and identity as the church and um to to do that is a is a sort of a massive undertaking and so we hope that we could make a modest 
contribution to starting that conversation. Absolutely. Um, I think those are really good observations just about uh, the world that we now find ourselves in. Um, We've spent the last few weeks on our show talking about sort of the Christian responsibility to respond to climate change and to be good stewards of of creation. So um, your your observations are right in line with what we're interested in exploring. I think if people read our first book 40 years ago and read this book now, one, in fact, people have commented on this, that, that the, um, the centrality of the earth and creation and the fact that we're a part not just of the human community, but of the whole uh, common community of the earth and all of its life and systems uh, is a much bigger part of this book than, than it was in the earlier one. That's right. And I, I want to just go back to the, the second change that you talked about, the the move to uh, a global Christianity, if you will. Um, um, in, your, in, in the book, you quote some statistics about how uh, rapidly the, the, the church, the Christian church is expanding in Africa and Asia. And at the same time, there's been a, a decline uh, in uh, in Europe and North America. Um, you uh, quote a, a statistic in the book that says that from 1910 to uh, 2010, uh, the world's Christians in Europe and North America fell from 80% uh, of those to uh, 40% a century later. And uh, so that's a, a profound uh, shift. And it's something I'm not sure American Christians have um, fully uh, grasped and appreciated. And I think um, one of the things that we are are learning, especially in the, the United Methodist Church, is that uh, Christians and other parts of the world uh, look at uh, at uh, their faith differently. They have uh, different uh, practices and also have, um, in many cases, a different approach to the to the to the scriptures. And so, um, this is a very important and profound shift, as well as um, uh, the the threat, uh, the, the crisis that we're in in terms of the environment, especially uh, climate change. So. Um, you know the 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 book is about scripture and about uh, ethics, and uh, you and your your co-authors um, have a very broad and rich understanding of ethics and morality. And one of the 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 key things that I would like to get out early in the show is just um, could you talk a little bit about the difference between morality and ethics? What's the difference between being a moral person and an ethical person. Well, it's common in ordinary conversation to use those terms somewhat interchangeably and loosely, and uh, that will continue to be the case. So, but there is a significant difference uh, when we try to uh, analyze the nature of our um, morality and the, and our ethics. Morality, every. Everyone has a morality. Um, uh, morality has to do with uh, the lived dimension of life uh, that relates to both our, our being, who we are, and our doing, what we do, as both individuals and groups. And so everyone 
has a morality, whether it's examined or thought about or not. We have things that we do and don't do that we've inherited from different sources and draw from different sources. It's often unexamined, but morality is just an ordinary part of everybody's human life. Ethics is a, a disciplined and systematic way of thinking about our morality. Uh, tries to analyze what are the components, what are the things that affect our morality. So ethics is, um, is in many ways a, 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 an academic discipline reflecting on human morality. And they are, of course, interrelated, but uh, not everyone has a, a self-conscious examined ethics. Everyone has a morality that they simply live, whether they're conscious of it or not. But ethics is the more disciplined way of thinking about that, analyzing it, trying to understand how it operates and what influences it. So um, I think that uh, for me, at least, uh, morality is about virtue and and one's moral character, whereas uh, ethics is more about how do you make uh, ethical uh, decisions when you're confronted with the dilemma that um, uh, poses uh, a conflict between different values or or different goods or or different duties. No, I'd, I'd I'd have to disagree with that a little bit. Okay, because I wouldn't want to make morality the being part of of our moral life and and ethics the doing part. I th- I think those are those are a part of the Christian life, no matter whether we're talking about morality or ethics. Um, morality has to do with how we're shaped, for instance, by our family or, or our church, uh, just by attending without being very self-conscious about it. Um, and and it also has to do with the decisions we make, what, what we think is good and what we think is right. And, and sometimes, even though when we in in, when people become intentional troublemakers, what they think is going to disrupt things. Right. But ethics has both a being part and a doing part. And I, I think one of the important contributions of our, our book is to help people understand that it has to do with both formation and virtue mm-hmm. and with um, actions and decisions. And so that there's a being and doing part on in, in both morality and ethics. Great. Well, thank you for uh, sharing that perspective, Bruce. Uh, for those of you who are just tuning in, uh, today we are interviewing Professor Bruce Birch about his recent book, The Bible and Ethics in the Christian Life, A New Conversation. This has been a great conversation so far. And if you're listening with us and have a comment or question for Bruce Birch, we encourage you to call in. The phone number to call into KZUM is 402-474-5086, extension 1. So, Bruce, I'm curious, how do you see the Bible informing ethical decision-making as well as the forming and shaping of moral character? Could Well, um, the... Uh the Bible um, informs our whole moral life in a variety of ways. Um, 
on the on the the shaping of our moral character, we're we're influenced by the Bible just by being um, as Christians, persons who go to church and hear Scripture read every Sunday. We hear sermons preached on the implications of Scripture. We hear Scripture in the the language of our hymns and our liturgies. Mm-hmm. We perhaps engage in Bible study groups uh, during the week. Um, all of this, over a long period of time, is forming and shaping us as what I would call moral agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they make us who we are as Christians, perhaps in a particular tradition, um, Methodists or Roman Catholics or uh, any other uh, denominational or independent Christian perspective, we're, we're shaped by that over the long haul. And that's, that's what I would call character formation. Okay. Um, Could you illustrate how the Bible should be informative, like using an example like hunger? Well, um, if I would assume that if somebody was going to church regularly, participating in the the study life and the worship life of the church, if one was in a Christian family where that the Bible was read and taken seriously, that uh, hunger, because it is so common and pervasive a concern in the mm-hmm. Bible, would be something that would come up often. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would you would hear many many admonitions uh, about the responsibility of those who are people of faith to care for those who have human needs like hunger, mm. clothing, shelter. Uh, that's what I would call a central moral imperative in the Bible. Um, now, um, it's not going, the Bible is not, however, going to tell you what to do about that. What would be the economic uh, system for our community that would help make food available to everyone who really needed it. Right. Uh, how do we... So so the actions that come from that are not something that the Bible is ordinarily going to tell you how to do or what to do. Uh, so we're shaped in our moral character by this as a central concern, mm-hmm. but then our actions as Christians who say, well, let's uh, let's form a food pantry program in our community. I think that will allow people to come anonymously. And, uh, you know, there are all kinds of strategies and actions you could build on that that mm-hmm. the Bible doesn't give you or tell you what to do. All right, and that might be a key to the next question here. Um, so could you differentiate for us between biblical ethics and Christian ethics or you know, do you see a difference? Uh, yeah, I see a, I see a, a pretty profound <laughs> difference, actually. Um, uh, I think that I think that Christian ethics is what we're all about as people of faith. We we don't leap back over two thousand years to biblical times and and just uh, use the Bible like some kind of a rule book or a guidebook or a handbook or as you suggested earlier a weapon right uh, sometimes gets used in that way uh, 
we really, even when we want to do that or think we should do that, we can't do that. The Bible comes to us mediated by all kinds of traditions and communities in between. Mm-hmm. And so, biblical ethics, in my mind, only has a meaning as a kind of an academic discipline. Mm-hmm. As a Bible scholar, I could set for myself the question, well, what did the community of 8th century Israel really look like in terms of what it considered right and wrong and, and moral and immoral? I could try to describe that biblical community as a scholar, mm-hmm. um, and that might be called biblical ethics. But we, but we have the Bible is pulled together over more than sixteen hundred years. What we have in the Bible are glimpses of biblical communities mm-hmm. over generations, um, witnesses out of those times. It. Even a picture of biblical ethics would be a partial one, glimpses at different periods of time. Christian ethics is how the Bible has been handed on, preserved, studied, acted upon by communities to form something that now is a part of an ongoing Christian tradition. It has, it has many different facets, but one of the unique things about Christian faith is that we basically all have the same Bible. Mm-hmm. even though we have many different expressions denominationally and traditionally. Um, and um, the, it's the biblical ethics, um, we, we don't really have a biblical ethics except these glimpses of different witnesses. It's the combination of those into something that's passed from generation to generation, used, reused, thought about, acted upon. That's what forms Christian ethics. Right. So and that's what that's what that's what we inherit. Right. So I'm hearing you say that biblical ethics is really centered and grounded and almost frozen in a particular historical time and place. The times and places that we read about in the Bible. And then Christian ethics is, you know, as we reflect upon that today, kind of what we make of it and how we live it out. And I guess would you, I'm curious, would you say that there are multiple Christian ethics at this point? I think that, you know, my ethic is different from from some other people I know who call themselves Christians. Yes, I think there are different expressions mm-hmm. of Christian ethics. One of the things I like about the central role of Scripture in all of this is that it get, it does give us a common meeting ground, even when we have different views. And w- one of the things we do on that meeting ground is to talk about how we use Scripture, and, and we do use it in some different ways. That's what makes for some of the very differences that you're talking about. For people who are trying to use it as a rule book or even as a weapon, mm-hmm. um, to me, they're abstracting from the Scripture things that I, they already agree with on different grounds. Mm. But if if we can appeal to one another across our differences to say, well, we have to take the whole Bible seriously, then, then we, we'll have at least a place where we can enter conversation in spite of our differences by saying, let's take this whole thing seriously because someone back in the beginning— of, of the scripture thought this was so important that they would hand it on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. And and then people collected them together and handed that on to another generation. 
they, people have been, you know, these weren't the only texts written. There were others that they didn't think were valuable enough to hand on. So we say, well, what was it about this that they really wanted us to take seriously? And shouldn't we take the whole thing seriously and not just the abstracted pieces that already agree with what we think? Bruce, that's really good. Um, But I'd like to just um, push you a little bit here in terms of uh, Christian ethics and what we think about Christian ethics, I think, as a, as a, a, a disciple of Christ myself living in the 21st century for me, Christian ethics provides that that guidance in terms of how I should live my life now, uh, and it informs my my thinking through of different uh, ethical dilemmas as well as um, justice questions and, and equality questions. And um, <clears throat> we, as Christians, understand and claim the Bible as an important source of authority. But but there are other resources that Christians can use in their their ethics in terms of uh, both morality and 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 ethics, and uh, so could you talk about what you see as some of the other uh, informing sources of authority for for ethics? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, both in uh, the original book that Larry and I wrote, and now in this new conversation, we use a phrase that's important to all of us, where we say that. Um, um, the Bible, Scripture, is is a primary source of authority, but not a self-sufficient mm. source of authority. That's an important distinction. That all Christians, in order to be Christian, have to have to use the Bible. In other words, it's primary for everyone. I mean, we wouldn't even know about Jesus if we right. didn't have the Bible. So there would be nothing that would define us as Christians if we couldn't all start there and agree that that's an important uh, source. But it's not self-sufficient. I always uh, use it as a kind of a common example. Uh, When I was in in the sixth grade, um, they, they wouldn't allow this to happen nowadays, but the Gideons came to school and gave us all New Testaments. And uh, in the back of my little New Testament as a sixth grader, there were a couple of blue pages, and on that it said, if you are discouraged, read Galatians, such and such, or something like that. And there were a little list of things. I got one of those books, too. As I grew to adulthood, I never was given a Bible that had a long scroll of things fall out of the back, and I could riffle down through it, and it would say, "In, in case of relative on heart lung machine, read... Mm-hmm. Um, Thessalonians two six. I, there are just all kinds of things that the Bible couldn't have known about or anticipated. So the Bible's not going to tell us what to do on everything. We need other sources of authority. And um, historically, churches have talked about this in slightly different categories, but they're they're in fairly general agreement that. One of those other sources is tradition, because the Bible doesn't leap to us untouched over the centuries. It, it comes down to us through a tradition. You're, you're a Methodist, so you, you're a part of a Wesleyan tradition mm-hmm. that, that has handed this on, and, and you right. would read the, 
you would read the, the sermons and journals of John Wesley to see what was important to him within your traditional uh, understanding of Scripture. And the same would be true of, um, of uh, say, Roman Catholics who have a, a huge body of, uh, of church social teachings that, that they read against uh, when they read the Scripture. Um, uh, Baptists have a more congregational polity, but still believe that it's important to read the Bible in community and in the light of the traditions that have been handed on. Um, this would be true for every different community within that great body we call the Christian Church, which we know is divided into many different confessional groups. They right. all start with Scripture, but they all have a body of tradition that they also think is important, and they even listen to one another's witnesses out of their traditions. We now live in a much more practically ecumenical age. We all know that that much more than in the past, people move into a community and they may go to the church that's closest to them rather than the one they went to growing up. So there, there, there's even a certain respect for the the tradition of differing uh, biblical uh, of differing uh, Christian communities. Then experience is simply the fact that we're 21st century people. We've we've got. We, we know so many things that even our grandparents didn't know about, mm-hmm. let alone people clear back in the, the early centuries of the church or in the biblical period, um, so that things like science are important to us in a way that wouldn't have been in previous generations. Right. Um, Absolutely. We, 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 we know that we, we contract diseases from... Uh, from from uh, germs and uh, and different factors in the environment make us ill. We don't we don't call in people simply to pray over us. Mm-hmm. We also call the doctor. Right. Yeah. And, absolutely. And, and, Bruce, and I'm we gonna, want a good doctor. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to to hit pause there for a second. Um, we are ready for a station break. Uh, We've been discussing the relationship between the Bible and Christian ethics with Professor Bruce Birch. Uh, We're going to go to a break, but when we come back, we hope that we can take uh, phone calls and questions from you, our listeners. So be thinking about questions that you'd like to ask and go ahead and give us a call. The phone number to call in to KZUM is 402-474-5086, extension 1. And we will be back right after this break. And... It's, it's important to be a part of that community conversation in interpreting this community-formed book. And someone who just reads the Bible on their own out in the woods uh, is settling for only a part of the intended experience of, uh, of, uh, of what Scripture is all about. Scripture is intended to form community. Uh, and... If you're reading it only as an isolated reader, one person, then you're only getting a part of what the intention of Scripture was all about in the first place. The, the Scripture is uh, shaped by community from start to finish, and its history is shaped by community. Thank you, Bruce. I was once, teach, I was once teaching in a context where someone asked me if I could talk about 
covenant community as a form of self-fulfillment. And I had to simply say, no, I can't. No, I can't. Uh, because we aren't self-fulfilled. Uh, as Christians, we believe that we're fulfilled as we are a part of the community that is the body of Christ. So, basically what you're saying, Bruce, um, I have to let you know that um, I think the first part of your response, I'm not sure everybody caught uh, because of a technical glitch that we had, but just that uh, in terms of both understanding the Bible and, and interpreting it and, and also thinking about what it means to be a moral uh, Christian, uh, that the community is very important uh, in terms of helping us to uh, interpret and to uh, to discern. Um, really, Bible study needs to occur within the, the context of the community of faith, uh, where we share with one another um, and uh, learn from one another uh, in, in the context of a, of a gathered community of faith and not simply reading the Bible out, out in the woods. Is that is that a fair recap of, of what you were oh, saying? Ab- absolutely. The Bible was formed as a community book, and it's intended to be used as a community-forming book. Exactly. Uh, Bruce, while, uh, while Richard was asking that last question, I was on the phone with a, with a uh, listener, um, Jason, and Jason just wanted to ask you, um, what do you see as the greatest value of of religious community or or Christian community specifically, um, kind of in this in a in a, in a very di- diverse world um, where a pluralistic world where there are lots of, of different communities and lots of different beliefs? Um, really, I think he was wanting to ask, you know, what does the church still have to offer? What's what's the greatest value in Christian community? Well, Jason makes a very astute observation that the nature of human life is that we're actually a part of many different communities, Mm -hmm. the family being our very first one. Uh, But over our lifetime, we move in and out of a lot of different communities. So the question becomes, uh, why should we choose a church or a Mm -hmm. Christian community as uh, a community that that is vitally important to us. Well, obviously, uh, since the church has declined in membership, both in North America and in Europe, some people are choosing to opt out because they haven't found that Mm -hmm. to be a really vital community. And that's a challenge uh, to churches to make its life, its its practices, its um, uh, conversations, are relevant to the issues that people really care about and mm-hmm. are are trying to struggle with. And so I think that's sometimes what's happened. Uh, if the church as a community becomes an end in itself, uh, then it runs the risk of becoming uh, irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And I think what Jason is pointing to is the need for the church to uh, not only... Uh, be a place where people perhaps find a comfortable community of people to be with, but a place where membership in that community also gives us some resources for living our life in a very complex, sometimes even dangerous world. Mm -hmm. And that's a challenge to the church. Uh, 
I think the Bible is a resource on that because the Bible is so diverse that it makes clear that community isn't just just some sort of um, uh, easy life gliding along with like-minded people uh, and mm-hmm. ignoring those wider challenges of the world. The, the Bible actually becomes a resource for us by showing how in many different generations uh, our early ancestors in the biblical communities tried to meet those challenges. That ought to model for us um, the courage uh, to address the challenges of our own time and become communities that persons like Jason say, well, I want to be a part of a community like that because it's going to help give me resources for living in this world, which I sometimes find troublesome and difficult. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge to the churches. And there are communities that do that and thrive, and, and we can point to examples but maybe there aren't as many of those as we would like to have. Right. Maybe sometimes churches are settling for survival rather than trying to really be communities that help people right. live their lives in responsible ways. Yeah, or it seems like maybe sometimes churches are the ones further polarizing our society instead of modeling the the biblical community that you mentioned in the Bible where we acknowledge difference and we, when we live with it and... Um, and try to work through it together instead of just separating when things get hard. Um, Absolutely. I mean, isn't isn't that a great story in the book of Acts when Peter and Paul finally get together? (laughs) Radically different understandings of what the early church ought to be, and yet finally understanding that there's a oneness in Christ that transcends that and allows them to be relevant both to the, the Jewish church at Jerusalem and the Gentile church that Paul is ministering to, which are radically different socially and culturally, but still have a common center. Uh, that, to me, that's always been a wonderful modeling story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just to uh, uh, continue this conversation about community, uh, Bruce, um, in Chapter 9 of the book, you uh, and your colleagues uh, list five roles for the church as a community for ethical discernment and Moral development. We've been talking all around about about the church as this uh, community uh, for the last several minutes. But I'd like for you to just sort of let our our listeners know what uh, those five roles are that you see, uh, and in particular, talk a little bit, if you would, about moral haven. I didn't catch that last phrase. Talk a little bit about moral moral haven. The the fifth oh, oh, the fifth moral role. haven, right. Um, well, all of these different roles for the church come intertwined, of course. And I, I want our listeners to understand that you you can't really separate this. But we, we sort of uh, thought it would be helpful at the end of the book to say, well, the church is always in a kind of intertwined way addressing these different uh, uh, aspects of uh, the moral life that the first of those is that uh, the church is a community of moral identity formation. And that simply means that uh, we are shaped and identified by the ongoing life of worship, of study, of interaction, of, um, of fellowship and community together, of engaging in common mission tasks. Uh, so that's forming us. 
as as moral agents. It's um, to put it in sort of a probably oversimplistic terms, it, it's helping us to be the good people that we want to be. Mm-hmm. And then the church is a bearer of tradition. That's the second function of the church. And then that goes back to a point we made earlier. It 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 makes a difference whether we are um, stand in a Wesleyan tradition or a Calvinist tradition or a Lutheran tradition or a Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, these have their own gifts to give and have formed communities on an ongoing way that have meaning to people. Uh, sometimes people uh, change from one of those traditions to another because they, they find more meaning in another arena. But um, uh, there, we, there, we can't be Christian without being a part and an inheritor of some of those ongoing traditions. And then the church is a community of um, third the thing is that the church is the community of moral discernment and deliberation. Um, we simply need people to talk to so that we can have uh, communities of people that can help us see the different angles of perspective on a thorny issue or different uh, possibilities in a an issue that seems to have no solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need communities of people to help us discern what might be the best thing to do, what might be the possible thing that we could do. And then, uh, of course, the church is an agent of action. Then we need communities of people to help us do what we decide might be a good thing to do in addressing a given issue. Uh, we act. We actually become agents of action uh, in the church. Uh, we aren't left to just be um, an isolated individual, and and many are a part of larger denominational traditions that even have a global reach. Um, you know, the uh, a whole combination of church-funded relief agencies were mm-hmm. on the ground immediately uh, in far distant places where uh, um, hurricanes devastated parts of the world that we may never see, but our, our reach helps us make an effect there. And then um, that final one that you uh, singled out is a, a little bit unique. We, we decided that we wanted to say that the church is also a moral haven, that um, sometimes we find ourselves in situations where... Um, the wider context in which right. we live is uh, is hostile. Um, I think sometimes those of us in the U.S. take this less seriously, uh, that in some other parts of the world, uh, Christians are a radical minority, and, and the church has become a moral haven where they can find people who uh, care about them, who share some of their values. And that can be true for us as well, even in a culture as um, complex as the U.S. and uh, as as steeped in democratic traditions. Uh, still, I think um, an illustration of this that we actually use in the book was the civil rights movement, where uh, at a time when the wider culture was actually in overt conflict over what 
rights and privileges ought to be granted to persons of every race. Um, Martin Luther King and and the movement that he was a part of really found their moral haven in the African-American churches that he grew up in and that were the center of a lot of that movement. The, the church was very much a moral haven in that period of time where they were having to face overt and even life-threatening hostility in some parts of our country. Right. Thank you, Bruce. Um, I'm afraid that that's about all the time we have for today, and um, I've really enjoyed our conversation uh, with Bruce Birch. It's um, been very very rich and very uh, uh, interesting. Uh, I'm a little frustrated. There's some other parts in the book that I really wanted to get to, including... uh, talking a bit about moral vision, but uh, perhaps, Bruce, we'll just have to have you come back for uh, another (laughs) uh, session of uh, Counterbalance. Um, uh, We are uh, out of time for today. We've been talking with Dr. Bruce Birch about his recent book uh, entitled uh, Bible and Ethics in the Christian Life, A New Conversation. The book was published in 2018 by Fortress Press. Bruce, thank you so much for being on Counterbalance this week. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you, Bruce. This has been Counterbalance here on KZUM, a progressive Christian talk show hosted by me, Beth Menhusen, and Richard Randolph. Be sure to tune in every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. Next weekend is uh, Mother's Day weekend, uh, and we're going to be talking uh, about a little bit of a different vision of God, one that you might not have heard of before. Uh, In church, we often pray our Father, you know, who art in heaven at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, but we're going to be talking about God, our Mother. Um, so kind of the more maternal aspects of, of the God that we perceive in Christianity. So be sure to tune in uh, next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. Until then, goodbye from Connection Point and Christ United Methodist here on Counterbalance.